Before we jump into today's message, I just want to quickly remind everyone that we are going to be taking communion together as a part of this service today. So if you're here at our watch party at 839 Shefford Road, make sure you grab one of those little communion cups. You should have got one of those when you came in. Or if you're joining us from anywhere else in the world, grab some juice, grab some bread as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together today. So we are wrapping up our five-week series called Healthy Habits. We have been looking at our spiritual lives because it's so crucially important to have a spiritual life that is healthy. And the reality is, is most of us will never realize that our spiritual health is unhealthy until we get hit with a crisis, until a problem in life shows up. That's Always when we find out just how strong our faith is, how we find out just how resilient our faith is. It's not when everything is good and our life is full of blessings. It's when life is hard and when there's challenges and when there's difficulties, when there's doubt, when there's fear. So that's been my hope throughout this series. And so I want to wrap up today. I want to talk about a spiritual life of discipline, a spiritual life of discipline. And I'm going to explain what that means in a moment. But just to kind of get our brain around that topic, I want to ask you something. And I want you to be honest about it. Um, you can share it in the chat. You can raise your hand here in the watch party. But uh, show a hand, say yes in the chat. You know, would you say your life today, so your life today at this moment in human history, at this moment in your life, would you say today your life is a lot more chaotic and challenging than it was two years ago? Is your life today more stressful? more chaotic, more challenging, less structured than it was two years ago. Hey, just show of hands, if that's you today, we can all rejoice and celebrate together because my hunch is that's going to be true for the vast majority of us because the world around us has so radically and rapidly changed on so many topics and so many issues all at the same time. And it's impacted us in so many different ways. Like I know my life over the past two years has become a lot more complicated, has become a lot more chaotic. There's been less routine. There's been less stability in life. And there have been seasons over the past two years where it looked like it was starting to adjust, adjust, looked like it's going to start to balance out, level out a little bit. <laughs> and then something else happens, whether it's something else in my family, something else in our country or something else just in society at large that then comes and disrupts everything again. 
right? So many things in our lives cause this disruption, cause this, this feeling of life as a challenge, chaotic and all of these things, right? And we're actually seeing the impact that that undisciplined, unsteady life is having on so many people. We're seeing this impact um, our mental, our emotional, and our physical health. And, and all of that begins to suffer when everything around us is just so chaotic and so confusing. And so today, that's why I want to finish this series off talking about a spiritual life that is disciplined. Now, I'm not talking about spiritual disciplines. We've talked about those a lot in our sermon series, Convergence, just a couple of months ago. We talked about all the different spiritual gifts that, sorry, the spiritual disciplines that we use as the body of Christ to grow into our relationship with God. You know, like Bible reading, like prayer, like fasting, like serving, uh, like worship, all of these things, these spiritual disciplines to help us draw us closer to God. What I want to focus on today is how do we become disciplined in doing spiritual disciplines? Because <laughs> we know what we should be doing to help us grow spiritually, but the problem is we don't. <laughs> We just we have a, such a hard time implementing these spiritual disciplines into our life. And so that's what I wanted to conclude this series on today. So we're going to be looking at a passage from Scripture from a book, a small little letter, which is right towards the back of your Bible. So it's literally, you can go to the very end of your Bible and just start flipping back to the left, and you're going to come across a letter called Titus. So we're going to look at that letter for a little bit here today. And what this letter is, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, um, written to a pastor, written to a pastor named Titus. You see, Paul writes three letters that we have in the New Testament, which are known as the pastoral letters. It's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And the reason these are called pastoral letters is because Paul is writing to two men, one named Timothy and the other named Titus, who have been put in charge, who are the spiritual overseers of a church. They are the pastors of these churches. And sometimes what we could do is we can look at that and go, well, this is a pastoral letter. So this is Paul's instruction to pastors. So this is something pastors have to do and not the rest of the church. <laughs> we could just kind of abdicate our responsibilities to the pastor and say, it's your job to do that, Pastor Kevin, because you're the pastor. This is a pastoral letter. So it must be for you to do. But we can't really do that as believers. We can't do that as the church because what ultimately Paul is doing is he's giving a charge. He's giving kind of a direction. He's giving spiritual advice to the pastor to then give to the rest of the church. That this is how the apostle Paul wants the church to live out. And he's calling shepherds. He's calling these pastors to shepherd and lead their churches in these areas. Okay, so this is what, you know, we've got to make sure that we look at that. This is not just for pastors, because this text we're going to be looking at today is challenging. I'll admit it. It's a challenging text. 
Um, it's a challenging text in living it out, and it's a challenging text in actually wanting to live it out. So that's why I wanted to just set the groundwork right away, even before I read this text. This is not a text just for me. <laughs> it's not just a text for the pastors here at Greenbelt Church. That this is a text for every single one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. So I'm going to start reading here in Titus chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to follow along. And if you are joining us and you don't own a Bible, if you're at the watch party, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you. You can turn to page uh, 1200, 1200. That's where we're going to be reading from. Actually, no, we're going to read from 1201. Um, and if you're joining us online and you don't own a Bible, I'd love to send one to you completely free. Just email me, kevin at greenbelt.church, and we'll get a Bible to you. So let's read here Titus chapter 2, again, starting in verse 11. This is what Paul writes to this pastor named Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. That last verse there, 15, that's that charge to Titus as a pastor saying, yes, this is how God wants you to live, but you're also to pass this on to the rest of your church. You're supposed to pass this on to the rest of the body of Christ, that you need to teach the church this. You need to encourage the church to be living this way. And you need to rebuke with authority as a pastor when your church isn't living this way. Now, show of hands, how many of you love to be rebuked? <laughs> I know I don't. I don't like being rebuked. And honestly, I don't like rebuking. It's not fun. It's messy and it's complicated, but it's the call of the body of Christ to build one another up, to encourage each other, to correct each other when we need correction. And what's fascinating about these passages, it's not telling us to go out into the world and correct non-Christians, to rebuke non-Christians. No, this is all about cleaning up the church. This is about cleaning up our own house, cleaning up our own lives, because a non-Christian world is watching us. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul. So let's just quickly look at some of these things that he talks about in this passage, and then we'll, we'll get a sense of how this plays out when it comes to the topic of discipline. And to help us unpack this a little bit, I want to give the big idea right away. And the big idea is this. It says, as we wait, we grow in discipline. The Apostle Paul is telling Titus to tell the church as we wait, we grow in discipline. So let's look at these things that he's talking about in this very short passage here. He talks about, first of all, here in verse 11, he talks about the grace of God. Right? He says, for the grace of God has appeared. 
that offers salvation to all people. Right? This grace of God, this is a reference to Jesus. This is a reference to the ministry and the life of Jesus, how Jesus appeared on the earth, how he was born of the Virgin Mary, how he was promised by prophets for generations that the Messiah was going to come to set captives free, to free them from the bondage of sin, to free them from the penalty of death. And so Jesus lived his sinless life. And he died on a cross where the full wrath of God was put on Jesus against the sin of humanity. Because the Bible teaches us that sin must be punished. And the only thing that can pay for sin is spilt blood. And so that's why the Jewish people have been sacrificing animals for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Thinking that that blood of these animals will wash away the sin. But ultimately it was temporary. And God wanted to give a permanent solution to humanity's sin problem. So God himself came and died on the cross. And to prove that he was God, he rose again from the dead three days later. He rose from the tomb. And then he went around and taught for days. He saw hundreds and hundreds of people. They were witnesses of his resurrection. And then he ascended back to heaven, returned to heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of God in the throne room of heaven, where he speaks on our behalf. So when God looks down on us, those who have put their faith in Jesus to save us from our sin, God the Father doesn't see sinners who need to be punished. God the Father sees children sees his sons, sees his daughter, sees those who have been adopted into his family. That's an incredible act of grace, the grace of God. It is something you and I could never accomplish with any kind of religion, with any kind of tradition. You and I could never earn God's favor, God's love, God's forgiveness, because we're always going to mess up. We're always going to do something we shouldn't do. And so this free grace, this free gift of God is something that we couldn't do. It's something that we don't deserve. It's something we can never lose once we've received it, right? This grace is what leads to the salvation of sin, as Paul calls it here in the letter. And it's this grace that gives the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, right? When we accept God's free gift of salvation, when we turn from our sin, when we say, God, forgive me, a sinner, make me new. When you pray simple words like that, God sends the Holy Spirit in you. And that is another act of God's incredible, powerful grace that now you're no longer alone. God is always close because he's with you. You don't need to go to a temple to come into the presence of God. You don't need to go into a church building because that's the only place where the presence of God is. No, the full presence and glory of God is in you. Every single believer, he's close. He's with you. And not only is he close and and is he with you, he empowers you. You see, the Christian faith is not about us modifying our behavior. 
the Christian faith is that we are modified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us begins to transform us if we're willing, if we submit to it. Because you and I, we can, we can ignore God if we so choose in our free will. And so this is what is going on in the life of the believer. We're never alone. God's always with us. And God gives us power to deal with all the difficulties of life. And, and then he talks about while we wait. And so what are we waiting for? If the full presence of the glory of God is with us already, what are Christians waiting for? Well, we're waiting for what he calls here the glorious hope. Or some translations here call it the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? The blessed hope is the return of Jesus. See, when Jesus returns and sets up his eternal kingdom, that is what we hope for. That is what we long for. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, there's a lot of other things I hope for. You know, I hope for good health. I hope for healthy finances. I hope that my kids do well in school. I hope that our church does well here. I hope that we impact the community. You know, I hope they finally make a good Star Wars movie. (laughs) Things like that. There's a lot of things that we put our hope in. But at the end of the day, those things are incomparable to the blessed hope that we long for. The return of Jesus. We get a picture of that hope in Revelation chapter 21. Let me read that text for you. This is where our hope is focused on as believers. The Apostle John wrote this, and it says in Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You see, our hope ultimately is not in the things of this world. It's, it's, it's not in worldly possessions. It's not in finances. It's not in our physical health. It's not in what governments decide. It's not in all of these things. Now, these are good things. And we want to see God work in all of those things. But ultimately, our hope is in Revelation 21, where God will fully dwell among man again. That's the blessed hope. And while we wait, we get glimpses of this hope. We see God answer prayer. We see miracles. We see moves of God in supernatural ways. We get glimpses of this hope, but we are not fully in that hope. I love how one of my seminary professors put it. It's we live in the now, but not yet of the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God is fully here and active in the church, but not yet. Because we still wait for this resurrection to come. We still wait for this glorious appearing of Jesus. We wait for the day when there is no more death, no more pain, no more tears, no more illness, no more problems, no more sin, no more death. So we wait. And what do we do while we wait? Do we just sit at home, binge Netflix, eat a bunch of food, relax, take it easy? No, we mature in our faith. We grow as disciples of Jesus. We live disciplined lives. And that's a spiritual journey that God brings us on through his power. Look at how the book of Titus continues here. He shows us this, excuse me, huge importance to grow in discipline, to grow in maturity, to grow more into the image of God. Look at how it continues here in chapter three. So again, not a verse, not a passage just for pastors, even though it's in the pastoral letter, because verse one of chapter three says, remind the people to So remind the Christians, remind church people to um, be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everybody. This is a... um, we're going to read the rest here, a few more verses, uh, chapters, uh, verses 3 to 8, on what we're called to look like as Christians. But this is a weird one here, <laughs> that Paul puts this reminder to the church to be subject to rulers and authorities, to live what Paul calls in other parts of the New Testament a quiet, peaceful life. <laughs> Now, that's a fascinating verse to study in the middle of a Canadian federal election. (laughs) And I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. But um, this is a fascinating thing to study in our day. And I have many conversations with people about this. I am all for um, our process to vote. I firmly believe in protecting rights and freedoms and, and all the values that we hold dear here in our Canadian society. However... If you do that in such a way where you slander, you are not peaceable, you are not considerate, you are not gentle, you are sinning as a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you really want to go down a deep rabbit hole, just study the Old Testament and study all the uh, people of God who were in exile to hostile um, nations. So nations that came in and destroyed the people of Israel, how did people like Daniel, Joseph, Nehemiah live out as a Jewish person? How did they live in exile? They actually lived lives in such a way to bring a blessing to government that was (laughs) anti-God. It'll mess up your skull if you go too deep down this rabbit hole. Maybe this will be a sermon for another time. But Daniel does everything he can to bless the king of Babylon. Nehemiah does everything that he can to bless the nation that had destroyed Israel. 
it'll mess up your skull. Okay, so there's a reminder here. I think for all of us as Canadian Christians right now, let's be mindful, prayerful about that. Something to do. Okay, let's leave that. Let's continue here in verse 3. Why does Paul call us to live this way as followers of Jesus? Why does he call us to live in an environment that may not be friendly to the gospel, to live in an environment where people do not uphold Christian values and want nothing to do with the Christian message? Right? Why are we supposed to live in a peaceful, gentle, considerate way? <laughs> because he says this in verse 3. He says, because at one time we were foolish. Because one time we were foolish. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. He's saying all of us were in that condition before. Right? I expect non-Christians to live like non-Christians because they're not Christian. They're, they haven't been empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I expect them to live that way. I expect a spirit-filled follower of Jesus to live in a different way than the world out there. At one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We hated and we hated one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And Paul continues in verse 8. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You see, I think in our Western culture today, it probably happens in other cultures around the world, but I, I live in a Western culture, so I really see this uh, dominating our culture. I think so often we look at the role of pastor and the role of shepherding a church. And we're very weary of pastors that are watering down the gospel. We're very weary of pastors that, um, you know, they're, they're making it sound too good to be true. They're preaching something that's not true because we're afraid of this whole tickling ears idea that the pastor is just saying stuff that people want to hear to grow their church. And that does happen. It does happen in a Western culture. But I actually think we've tipped the scale on that. I don't think we as a Western culture are um, doing a lot of ear tickling. I think what we're doing is not enough pushing, not enough expecting more of followers of Jesus. I think we're very tolerant of sin. We don't like having awkward conversations we don't like when we're challenged. We don't like these things. We don't like rebuking. We don't like correcting. We, all of these things that are in place, you know, that we're supposed to have in the church. And so we shy away from it. 
Like we shy away from verses that say, like what Paul says here, what he tells pastors to do, right? These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. And we're afraid to do that. We give into a spirit of fear and we're no longer living lives of discipline. And what discipline means is that we're consistently growing in our faith, we settle for a faith that has no power. We settle for a faith that can barely save us, let anybody else. <laughs> we settle for a faith that doesn't help us get victory over sin. We settle for a faith that does nothing to attract other people to Jesus. Like, could you imagine if Christians were out there in the world, all of us together, and we're not slandering people, we're peaceable, we're considerate, we're gentle, we're loving, we're welcoming, And yes, we can defend our beliefs, but doing it in a way that's different than the rest of the world, right? That's what we need to grow in. We need to grow in discipline because you and I are different than the rest of the world. We're different because we have been adopted into God's family. We have been washed clean of our sin. That's why we take communion together where it's a little whether it's a wafer and a little cup of juice or whether it's a piece of bread or a cracker and some juice it's a representation of the body and the blood of jesus that was broken and spilled for you and maybe you're here joining us today and you know a lot about God, or maybe you know just a very little about God. Maybe you know nothing about God. Maybe somebody invited to join you here at Greenbelt Church today. And I want you to know how much God loves you. That you can be brought easily into the family of God. Again, not by your own righteousness, not by the things that you do. Right? This is what Paul talks about in chapter 3. Why? Because all of us are foolish. All of us are disobedient. All of us are deceived. All of us are enslaved. All of us needed the death and the resurrection of Jesus to save us from our sin. And you can be brought into the family of God just real easily, just by praying right where you are. Just pray, Father, forgive me, the sinner. Thank you that you sent Jesus to save me from my sin. Come into my life and make me new. If you pray that today, a pop-up shows up in the chat. Would love if you would click that button. Let us know you did that so we could celebrate with you. If you did that um, at our watch party at Shepherd Road, I would love if you would go to Pastor Paul after the service and let him know that you did that. He would love to pray with you, and, and, and we'd love to get some free resources into your hand. And for all of us who have done that already, let's just take a moment to remember the broken body of Jesus. Let's take a moment to remember the spilt blood of Jesus because we're waiting for this blessed hope. We're waiting for this glorious day to come when Jesus returns, but we're going to trust in the power of God to help us grow in discipline. Help us to grow in the way that God would have us live our lives, to grow in a way that actually transforms the world around us. So if you have the little cup here, what you can do is the first little cellophane, you can peel that back and you can take out the wafer. And let's just take a moment to remember that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he gave gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So we do this in remembrance of him.
And then in the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup filled with wine. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant that is in my blood. This blood that is spilt, that washes us from our sin. It's exactly what Paul talks about in here when he says, you know, that, you know, that Jesus, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, so that we've been justified, right? It's that spilt blood of Jesus that justifies us before God, makes us holy before God. So it's that spilt blood. So let's take this in remembrance of Jesus. You see, surrendering our lives to Jesus, constantly we're being reminded of his death, his resurrection, the fact that he will come again. It helps us in our journey to grow in discipline, to become more like Jesus, to mature in our faith. Right? Paul shares a little bit more about spiritual maturity here in uh, Titus chapter 3 in verse 9. He gives an example of what spiritual immaturity can look like, and we should be avoiding this. He says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. (laughs) Sadly, church history, we haven't always been very good at Titus chapter 3 as human beings. Because boy, oh boy, do we argue over things. Boy, oh boy. Boy, do we argue about the law. Boy, oh boy, do we argue about controversies. I mean, just think over the last 18 months, the things that we're arguing over. Things that we're letting divide the bride of Christ that was beautifully prepared as a bride for her husband. Paul says, avoid these controversies. Avoid these arguments. Avoid these quarrels about the law. Why? Because they are unprofitable and useless. Have you ever tried to change someone's mind on Facebook? (laughs) Stop it. It's it's useless. It's never going to change someone's mind. The quarreling this way. Right? Paul says, warn a divisive person once, warn the second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may sure that such people are warped and sinful. They're self-condemned. Right? We've got to be so mindful of the things that we want to be so passionate about. Make sure that we're giving in to a maturity that makes us passionate about the things of Jesus. <laughs> makes us passionate about the glorious, blessed hope that's to come. To make us passionate about seeing other people come into the family of God. To see us passionate to grow in discipline. Because as we wait... We grow in discipline. And so how do we do that here at Greenbelt? Just real quickly, I want to share a couple of things. Again, we did that sermon series on convergence. If you missed it, I would encourage you to go find it on our YouTube channel. You can learn all about spiritual disciplines there to help you grow, like Bible reading, like fasting, all of those, like prayer. But how do we become more disciplined in accomplishing those things? How do we make those things more a regular part of our lives? Well, here as a mission of our church, like we want to lead people in knowing, living, and sharing Jesus. We want your faith in Jesus to impact every single area of your life. So we structure ministry in such a way to make it really simple for you to engage in the life of our church. In fact, we make it so simple, it's easy to stay disengaged. (laughs) 
<laughs> but we're going to be ramping this up more and more because we firmly believe this is the call of the church to live lives in such a way that change the world around us. And so to help us grow in spiritual disciplines, we need a disciplined lifestyle. And so we actually ask everybody, whether you're a child, whether you know, you're, you're, you're six years old or you're 96 years old and you're part of the Greenbelt family, we ask you to do three things to help you develop a disciplined life when it comes to following God. Right? We want you to make worship a regular part of your life whether it's the church online platform or whether it's back in person, we firmly believe that coming together as the body of Christ is crucial. It's a crucial part of the expression of our faith as we bring worship to God. And it's not about what we get from worship, but rather it's what we give in worship. That we give our full devotion and our full attention to the one who died and saved us from our sin. That it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And we worship him. And it's so important to make worship a regular part of life. Not just when it fits our schedule. Not just when it's convenient. Not when it's just the preacher that I like. Not when it's just the worship leader I like. All of these things. But to discipline ourselves in worship. The second thing we ask everybody to do is to serve, to know what your spiritual gift is. Again, that's why we did convergence, to know what your spiritual gift is so you can take the focus just off of yourself and use your spiritual gift that God gave you to be a blessing to other people. That helps us build lives of discipline. You know, because we might have to free up some time in the week. We might have to change our schedules a little bit. You know, as you begin to serve, you're going to find yourself being needing God more and being more dependent on God. So it makes you pray more. It makes you read your Bible more. It makes you do all these other things more because you're now using your gift and you're serving. Serving is a phenomenal way to grow spiritually. And I'm so grateful all the people who serve here at Greenbelt Church, but there's room for even more people to serve and use your gifts. So if you're not on one of our ministry teams, we want to see you join one. Reach out to us so we can help you serve and grow spiritually that way. And then finally, we want everyone, everyone, whether they're kids, and we're restructuring Kids Zone around this purpose, whether it's our Fusion Youth Ministry, whether it's adults, we want everyone to be in a life group. Because we actually believe that is where the best spiritual care happens. I mean, right now in our church, we have well over 700 people who call Greenbelt their home church. I can't pray for every need. I can't uh, respond to every need. So we've structured our church in such a way so that everyone has the opportunity to be loved on and cared for. Everyone has an opportunity to grow spiritually and be discipled. It's just up to you to take that step and make it happen. And starting next week, we're going into our life group launch. So if you've never been in a life group before, I'd encourage you to make this the year that you try it. Try it for eight weeks and see what God might do in it. There'll be in-person groups and online groups as well. These three things, we believe, help us to build a life of discipline, worship, serving, small group, life groups, right? Because as we wait, we are called to grow in this type of discipline. 
because the pastoral letters remind us that all of us need to be encouraged. All of us need to be rebuked from time to time so that the world will see the difference it makes to be a follower of Jesus. That they see that we have been transformed, that we've been made different, and not that we're perfect and holy and self-righteous in front of people, but they can see we're changed because of the incredible power of God at work in our lives. So we grow in the healthy habit of discipline to grow us, to change us, so that it has an impact on our lives, so it has an impact on our families' lives, so it has an impact on the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these pastoral letters and the reminder of what it means to be the body of Christ. And sometimes as the body, we need to, in love, correct. We need to, in love, rebuke. And so, Father God, I do pray for us as a church at Greenbelt. Father, forgive us if we've been divisive over the last 18 months. Forgive us, Father, if we've been judgmental over the last 18 months. Forgive us if we've been so concerned with proving we are right more than seeing someone come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, forgive me for those times. And Father God, I pray for each and every one of us uh, as a church family, whether it's the person who just put their faith in Jesus today or the person who has been walking with you for 50 years. Father, I pray for all of us that we would grow in discipline so that the world would notice that we're different, that the world would notice that we have been with Jesus and that's why we, we look different and behave different and think different in a way that draws more people to you. And so, Father God, I do pray for everything that's starting up again this week, all the churches, in-person gathering things that are going on, the schools that are reopening, everything, Father, that's going on in our city, in our nation, and around the world right now. Father, I pray that your will would be done. Your will, not my will, your will would be done (laughs) in our city, in our nation, in our world. And that you would use each of us here at Greenbelt Church to see that will be done. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.